All right. Well, again, welcome to Hope Lower Town. Glad you're able to be here this morning. And uh, those of you who don't know me, my name is Brian, uh, lead pastor here. And uh, yeah, excited to jump into uh, Romans. So we are in week nine uh, of this series. And again, we're, we're kind of doing like a four-week mini-series right off the bat here in chapter one. So we're going to be finishing chapter one today. And we're never going to go back to it ever again. No, I'm good. Um, I'm sure we will at some point. Why? Because again, the thesis is in here of the whole book. 16 chapters are hinging on what Paul is going to be teaching here in Romans. So um, before I, I get into that, again, I have a, a, a little question for you to kind of get us thinking the way Paul would maybe want us to get thinking about this text. Um, have you ever been asked to, to do something by someone because they knew they would get in trouble for it if they did it? You know what I mean? Like if you have a, had like a coworker who's already on thin ice with their boss, uh, and they want to get uh, out early on Memorial Day or whatever, whatever it may be, you know, like, hey, go, go, go ask the boss if we can get out, right? Because they know if they do it, they're just going to get screamed at and yelled at and shut down, right? But maybe you got a, got a chance. Maybe it's kind of like going to a different parent. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, if I want to go spend the night at somebody's house, I go ask mom, not dad, right? I mean, if I say, hey, dad, can I? He's going to be like, no, already, right? Um, it's kind of kind of like, right? And then uh, it made me think of I, the, when I was a kid, very young. I had to have been five or six. Um, and I had an older brother who was five years older than me. And we were at church, Bible Baptist Church in normal Illinois. And, uh, and we were outside. Again, pastor's kids. We do whatever we want. You know what I mean? Like we own the place. And we were outside. And my brother, uh, again, who was probably 10 or 11 at the time, tells me, his five-year-old brother, maybe six, hey, take this rock and throw it at the next car that drives by. And it's like, yeah, that checks out. That actually makes sense. I'm going to do that because you're cool and you're older than me and I want to show you that I'm cool too. And sure enough, car comes by and as hard as a six-year-old can throw a rock, I threw it and smashed into a car. Um, thankfully hit the door panel instead of the window and it, and it put a big old dent in it. And again, I, for some reason, was surprised when the car came to a stop and a lady jumped out and started chasing us um, as if that wasn't like that wasn't an option. You know what I mean? Like I was very surprised that this was happening. What do we do? We run into the church to escape uh, this lady who followed us in and found the pastor who happened to be my dad. Um, and I got whooped. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it made, which, you know, that kind of makes sense. Uh, don't throw rocks at cars right now. But I remember my dad was mad at me, but he was irate with my brother. Right. Why? Because he knows better, right? He, he knew better than to, than to suggest that I do something that's wrong. Uh, and, 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 it's, and that's like what Paul's going to be getting at today um, in, in, in some way, that there's something extra to those individuals who, who know something's wrong and encourage other people to do wrong as well. So uh, that's what we're going to be looking at in this last verse of Romans chapter 1, Romans 1, 32. Uh, but again, just to kind of, I'm not going to recap the whole thing and where we've been for the last eight weeks, but the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the Romans, to the churches in Rome, uh, these Gentile churches that would have been a mix of Jew and Gentile Christians, believers, and he's writing this. And again, his main question that he's trying to get at is how could a just God allow anyone into heaven? Right? And again, a good question. How can a loving God send anyone to hell? It's a great question. That's not Paul's question. Paul, and you're going to see it very clearly today, is arguing everybody's guilty. He's going to use the language. Everybody deserves death. 
So how is it, we're going to spend the rest of the book looking at how is it that God can allow anyone to be forgiven? We're all guilty. That's, that's going to be his argument. We'll see that today. So again, we kind of did this mini-series um, looking at Romans 1, 18 through 32. And we introduced this idea that's going to, that's going to tie in through all the text of this, uh, of the wrath of God, this divine chastisement. This isn't unhinged wrath, vengeance of a lady chasing a kid who just hit a car with a rock. Not that kind of wrath. This is deserved. Well, I guess that was deserved. All right. That wasn't unhinged. Maybe it was unhinged, but it was deserving wrath. Right. And, and that's what God is. You, you, you've done something wrong against me. You've rejected me. You've, you've dishonored me. Um, you don't honor me. You honor yourselves. And, and, and so wrath is poured out. But again, kind of the aha moment that Paul reveals here is that this wrath isn't some future wrath. This isn't something like hell and fire and brimstone. That's, that's not what the wrath that Paul is talking about. He's talking about here. And now the wrath of God is poured out when God says, go ahead, do what you want to do. Go ahead. You want to choose what's good for you? Go ahead. You want to choose what's bad for you? Go ahead. Don't listen to me. Let's see how that works out. And that's the wrath of God being poured out and then two weeks ago, looked at the great exchange. Uh, one of our elders, Paul, preached on this, uh, looking that we choose the creation over the creator, that God has given everything and he's, he is God, and yet we choose to worship things. And, and, the, and the examples that Paul gives are created things like birds and trees or whatever it may be, the nature. But a lot of times, I think for, for us, it's usually something else. Something that's good. Maybe it's our job. Maybe it's our family. Maybe it's church. Maybe whatever it may be that we fill it with something rather than God, the creator. And we exchange that. And then last week looked at this idea of natural for unnatural, that we refuse to acknowledge God. We refuse to love God. We reject God. And we are driven to dishonorable passions, which are unnatural. That our natural, the way we were created was to worship God. And we rejected that God and so we are without excuse to use Paul's words. I'm going to reread this whole chunk, 18 through 31, um, just to kind of get us, because it's all this, right? We, we've been going through this for four weeks, but I just want to get it fresh in our minds. This is where Paul's at. These are his arguments. And then he's going to end it here with the verse that we'll be looking at today. He says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invis invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God and give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women who were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. 
And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That's where we've been, right? So that, that was the last three weeks that we spent looking at those verses. So if you, if you, your first time hearing this and first time reading that, go back and listen to it on the podcast on the website. Uh, it's all on there uh, to hopefully expand on the truths of those passages. But this week's sermon uh, is what is titled the law of God or specifically the, the little L law of God. And that's going to be a phrase that you're going to hear a lot throughout this book, throughout Romans, that we've got the big L law of God, capital L law of God, and then we have this little L law of God. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that when we talk about the law of God, we have to differentiate which law are we talking about. Because, and, and, and Paul is going to do that as well throughout the book. He's going to talk about both kinds of laws. By this law of God, by the big law of God, is very explicit. Thou shalt not. <laughs> or love one another as I have. God is commanding us to do something. That's the big L law of God. The little L law of God is the things that God has revealed about humanity on our hearts, about who he is, our conscience, if you will, what is right and what's wrong. That he has revealed himself in some way, which is why Paul is going to say we're without excuse. We know even in our heart of hearts what is right and wrong, and yet we still go against it. And we do this all the time. So, Let's look at this passage. So Romans chapter one, verse 32, this is going to be our verse for today, says this. Though they know God, and again, the they, there is all humanity, right? Paul is not writing this saying, I'm above this, I'm better than this. We're a church, I'm writing to the churches in Rome. Uh, you guys, this isn't you. No, 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 this is all humanity. They, mankind, humanity, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So let's look at this knowing God. They know how can God allow anyone into heaven? And this is going to be Paul's argument that everyone is guilty. Everyone de deserves death because they know. Romans chapter one, though they know God's righteous decree, again, all of humanity. I'm going to go back and look at this briefly last week, but I want to spend a little bit more time here this week in Genesis chapter three. It says this, and we're going to see God's big L law. God's big L law was thou shalt not, right? Do not eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't do it. That's a big L law. It's, it's, it's very clear what I'm allowed to do and what I'm not allowed to do. Now, the serpent was more crafty than other, any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, and I'm not going to, we're not, that's not our passage for today. I'm not going to dig into what's the serpent, who is the serpent, what's happening here. Did the, guard, did the serpent actually talk? I'm not getting into that. It's a whole other whole sermon. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? Again, you flip back one page and God says, thou shalt not eat of the tree. So the serpent, crafty, again, that, it's interesting because that word crafty, just said I wasn't going to get into this, but crafty is, is a neutral word. It, it means a, 
um, what is the, what is their phrase? Like, like, um, shrewd, right? Kind of like a, a wise businessman or woman, but, 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 you know, can work at the system to their advantage. Okay. That's kind of what's happening. Crafty. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And it's like, no, he just said that. And so the woman said to the serpent, no, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, all of them. But God said, you shall not eat of this fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Okay. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that there was a desire to make one wise she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened. This is interesting. This is where I want to get at. The eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Something happens when they eat of this that all of a sudden they now know something. They learn something that they weren't supposed to learn. Right? Their eyes were exposed to something that they just simply were not ready to be exposed to. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. There's something about the little L law now of God. They had the big L law. Don't eat of this tree. They eat of it. And then what happens? Now all of a sudden the law of God, a little L law opens up and they go, holy smokes. I'm exposed to something that I'm not ready for. And I, and I need to cover my, my nakedness. We've always been naked. There was nothing wrong with my nakedness of being physically naked, yes, but emotionally naked with one another, completely exposed with one another. No fleeting thought goes un, unspoken. They can just be completely honest. And now all of a sudden it's reserve, hide, shame. Why? Because they learn something. Again, the big L law, do not eat but now they're aware of these little L laws and they know they gain the wisdom just as the serpent said they would. And now they know they're naked. Again, they gain that independence, that autonomy is what every human wants. That God says, I want you to depend on me. Humanity says, mm, no thanks. I'm going to choose what's good for me. I want autonomy. I will tell you what's, what's right and what's good for me. John Walton um, in his commentary on Genesis says the C.S. Lewis observes that a parent's love for a child acts in order to eliminate the child's need for the parent, right? That's what, that's what we do, right? I, wanna, I want you to, to be with me as long as you can, but you, you hit 18, you hit 21, you hit 25, get out, right? I need you to be independent, right? That, that's, that's what we want to do. I want to raise my kids in a way that they can function on their own. I don't want my kids, I don't want to have to file my taxes when they're 35 as a dependent, God's love, in contrast, is not optimized in his becoming superfluous, but in our becoming dependent on him, continually maturing ways, okay? So I learn from God, I study him, I get to know him, and I'm dependent on him. That's how we were created. That was the natural way to lean into him as a good father and be dependent on him. God offered nothing less to Adam and Eve than the privilege of freedom, and the joy of dependence, right? Do you remember what it was like to be a little kid? I don't know, not everyone was raised in the same, you know, area and family and household. I understand that. But you, when you were little, 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 just carefree, you know what I mean? Just, just remember those days like waking up from a nap, you know, and the windows open, the birds are chirping, and you got Mario left on, you know, it just, just carefree. 
don't have to worry about paying rent. You don't have to worry about getting food. Just, right? And I know some of us grew up faster than others because of the dependence and the independence that we had that was forced upon us. And that's exactly what happens to Adam and Eve. They're dependent on God completely like a little child. They disobey and now they have independence. Uh, let's see, where was I? Um, our society treats this, this dependence on God as an oxymoron and labels God a tyrant. In rejecting dependence on God, though in no way escaping from it, people chose far more costly dependency on themselves and their own resources. In seeking autonomy, freedom, and power, they only forge new chains. If you keep reading Walton, I'm not going to have another quote here, but he, he uses that language of they, they quickly pass through adolescence in a way that they shouldn't have. That this gaining of wisdom is, is passing through adolescence. They grew up too fast. They weren't ready for it. And they're forced to make their own decisions that they were never created to make for themselves. We can see this when, when little kids are, are exposed to something that little kids just simply shouldn't be exposed to. It causes issues and pain. We're not supposed to grow up too fast. And that's what Adam and Eve did. And that's what every single one of us does when we seek independence from God. Continuing, this little L law then is seen in Adam and Eve's kids. Just flip the page to Genesis chapter 4, 8 and 9. It says, Cain spoke to, his, to Abel, his brothers. Cain and Abel are children of Adam and Eve. They do these sacrifices to the Lord. They worship Yahweh. God uh, accepts Abel's sacrifice, the first fruits of his labor. And Cain works the fields and tries to give actual fruit. And God's like, that's not what I'm looking for. And Cain gets mad. And anger starts to swell up in him. It says, And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Immediately, you've got lying, deceit, hiding. But yet Cain knew, he knew murder's bad. Does God ever give a big L law to Cain? Thou shalt not kill? No, it hasn't happened yet. But yet Cain knows I probably shouldn't kill him. And yet everything in me can't stand my brother and his pleasing Yahweh or God. I'm going to kill him. He knows this is wrong. How do we know this? Because in verse 14, he says he's feeling the guilt and the shame. And he says, whoever finds me is going to kill me. Right, they're going to seek vengeance. How do you know this, Cain? Because there's this little L law that's written on everyone's heart. And we're all guilty of not even obeying that law, let alone God's big L law. And what's interesting here is he says, I do not know. And while you go back, the whole point of eating the fruit and, and growing up too quickly was so that you would know, so you could choose what is right and wrong for yourself. And Cain here, though, says, I don't know. Why would he say this? Why would he say that he's going to be killed? 
If we dig deeper into this idea, which we're going to in a few weeks, specifically at verses uh, 14 and 15 in chapter 2, we're going to look at the moral argument for God. C.S. Lewis has some great works. If you look at just mere Christianity, it's called classical apologetics. But he really gets into, how can I prove that God exists? And I think it's a really good argument. He He goes into morality. Why is it that murder is illegal in every single country? God, God exists. He's written these things on human hearts. So we'll get into that very much so in a couple of weeks. But for now, we know that God has written this little L law on our hearts and all of humanity knows better. We have a conscience. What's interesting is we take our little laws, our little L laws, and we, we put them on others, right? We want other people, hey, this is my law. This is what I believe. This is how I think we should act. And I want you to do the same. We do this all the time. We expect other people to obey our laws. Think of uh, Minnesota goodbyes, right? These long goodbyes. Like just, I said I was going to leave. Why can't I just walk out the door and get in my car? All right, it just doesn't make any sense. Why we're still here 20 minutes later, right? We expect people to do that because it would be rude. Why is it rude to leave when I say I'm going to leave, right? It doesn't... But we expect people, I remember when I was uh, working at Caribou Coffee um, back in the day that there was in, in the training that if there was ever uh, a time where there was only one item, right, one little piece of banana bread left in the, in, the, in the case, you had to fill it up because they said Minnesotans won't buy the last one. It's, it was in the training book, right? Like people are, like that's a, that's a little L law that was in the training book of, of, of culture. Minnesotans aren't going to buy it, right? Again, I'm Chicago. I'd look at it and be like, oh, cool. I can get the last one. Yay, look at me. I'm better than all you, right? That's just how, um, I think it was uh, this past week, I found an article from the Atlantic on, on words, right? That we're just, we just can't use anymore. Uh, you can't, you're not supposed to say, and again, <laughs> I'm going to say it, which, okay. You're not supposed to use the phrase trigger warning anymore because it's triggering to people. I, okay, that's fine. There's a whole list of words that we're not supposed to, to use in that sense. Because it's like, well, who's making these laws? And then um, Paul Stiver sent this article to me. It was 56 rules on how to behave in the Twin Cities. Right? These are little L laws that we just expect people. So I, I, did, I put one in here. This is the second one. Ain't nothing wrong with a little small talk about the weather. It says, look, we... We have a lot of weather in this state, and sometimes you will be in a social situation where the only thing you can be sure to have in common with the other person is human skin that responds in similar ways to heat and cold and water that falls from the sky. So make the best of it. Learn to enjoy saying, oh, I didn't realize there was a swear word in here. I apologize. <laughs> I even proofread it because I was going through it, and I was like, wow, there's a lot of swearing in this. I should double check. I did. I apologize. <laughs> saying things like, sure is a hot one. Uh, and we, we could use some rain though without shame, but see rule number 50 below. Okay. So now you have, you gave me a little L law and you're tagging on an asterisk, little L law on it. And the little L law number 50 was nobody cares that you're cold. Okay. What? Okay. So I can talk about the weather, but I can't talk about how cold I, what are we talking about? Right. We do this all the time. And I think culturally, this phrase, this little L law that a lot of people believe that if it's not hurting anyone, then just let me do this. Let me be, leave me, leave me alone. I'm not doing anything to you. I'm not hurting you. I'm not hurting your religion. I'm not hurting your God. I'm not hurting your faith. I'm not doing it. Just leave me, leave me alone. 
And, and there can be some truth to this, but yet when somebody has a belief system, what, I'm, what I've kind of talked, I don't know if I've coined it, but this new fundamentalism, right? When we think of like fundamentalism religiously is that I'm going to build my walls, I'm going to act a certain way, and I'm going to get mad at you if you don't believe what I believe. Sound familiar? Right? This is just our culture right now. This new fundamentalism of philosophy. It could be politics. It could be uh, education. It could be finances. But if you don't have the system I have, you're an idiot and you actually are hurting people. This is new fundamentalism. We, we just expect people to align with our little L laws. And Paul's argument here is saying that all these little L laws, the 56 reasons of, of whatever, of, of how to behave in the Twin Cities, they stem, they're derived from the knowledge of God, the knowledge of good and evil. They derive from our desire to choose for ourselves what is right and wrong. And so in, in the middle uh, of this sermon, right, just this little gospel application, what little laws do we place on others or ourselves? Right to think I'm better than them or they're they're worse than me. And what's interesting is we could easily turn this into a law, right? We could easily be like, well, well, I, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna not hold that against you. And it's like, well, that's you're, that's law. You're doing it to yourself. There's law everywhere, and the law kills. Specifically, we can see that God's writing equals death. Right, the God God's little L law is written on our hearts. And when God writes something, law, and we disobey that law, it means death. As Paul's phrase, that we deserve to die. Though they know God's righteous decrees, that those who practice such things deserve to die. Again, these righteous decrees, again, are not the big L law. It's not, thus saith the Lord, thou shalt not. These are the laws, his righteous decrees, that are just on our souls as human beings. I want to look at a couple examples of when God writes in chapter 32 of Exodus, verse 15. It says, Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, in the front and the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And as you look at these, these two tablets, he ends up destroying Right, because he comes on the, the comes on the mountain and they're worshiping a false idol. It's literally on the stone, in God's handwriting, thou shalt not make any graven images of me. And they make a golden calf to worship. Look, these are the gods that brought us out of Egypt. And Moses is furious and he breaks them. And then he, and God's like, all right, come back up the mountain. We'll do it again, right? And that's, and that's what happens. God writes it. But then he says later on in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, do this, obey this, and you will live. Disobey and you will die. It's death. Law is deadly. He's going to do it again. One of the only other times in the Bible where we see God actually writing with his finger is in Daniel chapter 5. Daniel is an old man. He's a prophet here for King Belshazzar. And he says this, King Belshazzar made a great feast for thousands of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousands. Belshazzar, when he had tasted the wine, commanded the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father uh, from Babylonian, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. What's going on here? Nebuchadnezzar, his dad, who was king of Babylon, goes in, he takes over Jerusalem, takes these vessels from the temple that were consecrated to worship Yahweh, to worship 
the God of the Israelites. And he takes them. And so Belshazzar has, a, has had a little bit too much to drink. And he's like, I've got a good idea. Let's go get those sacred items that we stole from the Israelites and let's drink wine out of those just to stick it to their God. And then they brought in the golden vessels that they had taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Sound familiar? That's exactly, it's exactly what wrote, but Paul is saying. We, we've made this exchange, the same here as Belshazzar. Immediately, here we go, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall in the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote, and the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. Right? Terrifying. He gets people to come in, translate this. What's going on? What's happening? Nothing, nothing. Nobody can do it. And he's like, I know what you should do. Let's go get that old man, Daniel, from Israel. Maybe he knows what's going on. Daniel comes in, skipping down to verse 24. Then from his presence, as Daniel now uh, talking, then from his presence, the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed. And this was the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. This was the interpretation of the matter. Mene. God has numbered your days in your kingdom and brought it to an end. Again, mene. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And Belshazzar's like, wow, thank you so much. You're second in my kingdom. You're great. And that night, Belshazzar dies. The writing of God and his law means death. And again, we're looking at this law that's written on our hearts. And yet something changes when we see Jesus. When we meet Jesus, something changes. It's death until Jesus. And when we look at John chapter 8, 6 through 11, and I'm going to, I've just put in my notes, I literally just have a star above this slide because a little asterisk for myself, that if you open up your Bible, you will see that John chapter 6, if you have a footnote in your Bible, excuse me, John chapter 8, this section of the Bible, uh, the footnote, there'll be big brackets around it. And then it will have a footnote that will say, this was not uh, found in the oldest manuscripts. What's that mean? If you look at certain Bibles, let's take the King James, for example, written and, and translated in the, I'm going to step to the side. This is not, has nothing to do with my sermon. Um, that the 1611 King James Bible uh, was translated from what was called the Byzantine text. Okay, that they took 12 of the most complete copies, but they were much newer, I'm sorry, much uh, younger if that makes sense, that they were, uh, some of them were written in the 11 and 1200s, but they were more complete. And so when the translators uh, King, around King, King James put together the Bible, they were taking something that was more complete. Well, technology changed, and we got thousands of manuscripts, the Dead Sea Scrolls, fill in the blank, uh, that they're able to take these scrolls and, you know, do an MRI on them, and they can read them without pulling them apart. And, and so now we have really, really, really old manuscripts and what this is going to say is that this story isn't in the older text, okay? So maybe this never happened. And I'm okay with that, right? I wouldn't even have brought it up, but I just wanted to state that. Because we're not learning anything new about Jesus. He's going to say these things in other places, but Jesus does some writing in the sand, okay? That's why it fits with the sermon, all right? So I could have used other passages, Luke chapter 4 and Luke chapter 8. There's very similar stories, but this is the one time, and I think this is still very powerful. And even if this didn't happen as is written, I, I think it very well, I prob it probably did, and somebody uh, added it to the account. But either way, I want to get to the point here. 
says, this they said to test him. This is the Pharisees. The religious leaders go to Jesus to test him. They bring this woman who's caught in adultery. That's the this story is what it's called. She's caught in adultery. How'd they find out? Well, I don't know, but they found out somehow how she was caught in adultery. They bring her out to Jesus that they might have some charges to bring against him. Right, Jesus, who's guilty? She gone, right? We were supposed to stone her, right? Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger in the ground. We have no idea what Jesus writes. No clue. Some commentaries would be like, I think that he's probably writing down their sins. <laughs> right? I, was like, I don't know what he's writing. Nobody knows. And if you read a commentary, he's like, this is what Jesus wrote. Don't read it because they don't know. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Again, this is the same, very similar story in Luke chapter seven with the woman who comes in and starts crying and starts washing Jesus' feet with her hair. And that one is an older text. And he says, your sins, which are many, are forgiven. Jesus now forgives the sins. The law that I have broken, the law in my heart, I know it's wrong to commit adultery. I know that I'm supposed to be faithful to God. Even if I don't know the big L law, I know there's something in me that this is not okay for me to be unfaithful to this person that I've been with. There's just something there. And God says, I forgive you. There's mercy and there's grace this side of the cross, just for time, uh, I'm just going to just skip that, that point. It wasn't a huge point, but I want to look at this idea of the approval of sin. Romans chapter 1, verse 32, I'll just read this again. They know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And I as I was doing my research this week, I mean, I, I have, I don't know, 15, 20 different commentaries on Romans, and all of them were unanimous on this viewpoint. So I'm just going to read two of them, but this was the, the idea. Charles Hodge comments, this is R.C. Sproul quoting Charles Hodge, comments that to take pleasure in those who do good makes us better, right? I'm, 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 I'm better to take pleasure in those who do good. It makes me better to delight in those who do evil is the surest way to become even more degraded than they are themselves, right? Who gets in trouble? My brother for encouraging me to throw the rock or the one who throws the rock. What Paul is saying is the one who encourages you to throw the rock. It's fair to say that it shows a greater depravity to encourage others' sin than to commit the sin yourself, and this is just true. It's a very similar example, but, I, but thinking of my, my boys, right? I've got a, now a six-year-old and tomorrow a four-year-old. Um, we have this rule in our house, no potty talk, right? It's pretty self-explanatory. Little boys love talking about gross things, right? And, and so the rule usually, depending on, especially at dinner, no potty talk. It's a, it happens every time, every time we eat, but that's the rule. And, and, and at some point, it gets to a level where I'm like, next person to say something is taking a timeout. Are you getting in trouble for this? And Henry, right, they're off playing, and then Jack will come running upstairs, poop, <laughs> and then run away, right? It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I just said, don't do that. And now you're doing that. And it's like, then I hear Henry, hey, Jack, go, go say this. It's like, oh, okay, okay. All right. Now, because Henry, you know you're wrong. And what, what, what Paul is saying here is that it's, it's worse 
Again, uh, one other commentary here. This is uh, Doug Moo's commentary on Romans. It says, Paul goes further. His not only but also construction implies that he views those who approve of sinners as worse than the sinners themselves. Paul is not uh, minimizing the seriousness of sin. He's implying that people who label sin as good or natural or noble are doing great damage to the morals of society for eventually it becomes acceptable behavior and people are no longer conscious of their sin. I don't know where your mind goes. I remember when I read this, right? It immediately became like a societal thing. Other people do this, not me, right? I know I'm good. I have the right answers. If they just thought the way I thought, if they just lived the way I lived, then society would be a better place, right? This isn't what, what, what Moo is trying to say and what the Apostle Paul has been saying, oh man, if we could just get the liberals out of here, right? If we could just get these conservatives to think about other people, that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about us. I do this. We approve of other people's sins. This is us. We wanted autonomy and this is what it looks like. This is the wrath of God being poured out on us. We get to choose for ourselves what's right or wrong and we lose our dependence on God and then therefore we then approve of the wrongdoing of other people. And if it wasn't for the grace of God, we will continue to function like little kids growing up too fast. We will continue to function like a child who has no constraints, like a a little kid given infinite money in a candy shop. They're going to make themselves sick because they just don't know any better. I'm going to choose for myself what's right and wrong, and I need the grace of God. We just sang about this, that I need to live in the grace of God. Right? We're going to have reckless abandon for what is evil, and I need to recognize and live dependently on God and his words to help me along in my understanding. We don't understand like a little kid, but I can understand. I can learn. I can read what God has shown me from his big L law and learn about these little L laws written on my heart. And I can know his will for me, what is natural for me to honor God. And again, it's not this, um, like, like, uh, one of the commentaries Walton said, it's not this oxymoron of like, oh, you're just this tyrant. Just all oh, worship me. No, God has made us to worship him, which is good and loving because he is the only thing that can fulfill and satisfy. So I need to live dependently on him. And I just want to go back to Romans chapter 1, 16 through 17. Again, just this is the thesis statement. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not, a, not ashamed of the fact that Jesus came and died for my sins. And I need to constantly be reminded of that because I am prone to wander. I am prone to leave the God I love. I'm prone to judge other people by my little L's. I'm prone to judge other people by God's big L law. I, I judge, I live in my own little fundamental world of my way or the highway, and I need the grace of God, and I need to depend on him constantly. It is the power, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The righteousness, what God, his law, what he wants for us, what's best for us is revealed from the beginning of my faith to the end of my faith. As it is written, as it is written the righteous will live by faith. So in conclusion, gospel application, do we approve of others' sins? All right, this could be anything. This could be gossip in the office, 
in the chat, you know, on Zoom. You can do the private chat. <laughs> he's such an idiot. Do we approve of that? Ha ha, LOL, he's such a dork. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Drunkenness. Oh, yeah, you're crazy. Just one more drink. Let's just see what you get a little crazy. You know, five beer. Johnny's a little, little unhinged. That's what Paul's talking about. I don't know where Johnny came from. I was trying to think. I don't know anyone here named John. That's why, <laughs> that's why I said that. Do we approve of our sins? Right, but again, there's grace here. Do we believe the power of God for salvation, the gospel, be grounded in the gospel, continually dependent on God? Not independent, not autonomous, choosing for ourselves, it's right or wrong, but knowing the word of God, knowing what he has for us and the freedom, right? That's, we, I say it every week, you've been set free to be free. I am a slave, to use Paul's language in Romans 1, I am a slave to Christ, but there is so much freedom under him than under my own freedom that I think is free, but it's really slavery to sin and law, big L law. We're set free from that to be grounded continually in dependence on God. Let's pray. The worship team is going to come and they're going to sing two more uh, songs. And then we'll have a time of communion that we do every week. And so um, we practice something called open communion. And so that just means that if you're a follower of Jesus, you don't need to be a member of this church or any church, maybe this is your first time ever going to church, um, that if you're like, yeah, I want to follow Jesus, I want that freedom that I have and dependency on Christ, then I would love for you to partake of these elements. The, the, the wafer that represents the broken body of Christ for us, the juice that represents his blood that was poured out for us to, to, to take that wrath away that we deserve. Jesus is the one who paid, paid for that. Now we get to come forward. We get to take this meal together. We get to remember the finished work of Christ in the cross, the power of salvation, that gospel of Jesus Christ, and we get to approach God boldly and we get to go to him and depend on him even as we sing, as we pray and repent. Um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, thank you for your word. I thank you that you have revealed to us that without you revealing who you are, that we have no hope, that we need to be able to see who you are, to, to sit under the teaching of your word and the reading of your word to be, uh, to know who Christ is, to know who the Savior is, so we can be forgiven of our sins. That is the power. And that we would depend on you constantly, always, daily, moment by moment. Not just one time when we come to faith in you, but always, continually. But you would help us not to approve of our sins, not to approve of other sins, but to show grace to others and ourselves because you show us grace, that you forgive us of our sins. You forgive us when we approve of others' sins and approve of our own sins. And we would, we would depend on you and embrace that power of the freeing power of the gospel. And we pray these things in your son's name of Jesus. Amen.